uh, let's pray for our children and then uh, pray for ourselves as well, and, and then we'll open God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can hold our own personal copy in our hands, that we probably have multiple copies of your Word, and it's very much something I think the modern-day church takes for granted. And there still are parts of the world where they don't have God's Word in their own languages. And so, Lord, we thank you for people like the Kennels who are translating, eagerly translating the rest of the uh, Old Testament and New Testament into the language of the folks down in Papua New Guinea. And we pray that they would be successful in that. And, Lord, that these people would be able to come to faith in Christ because they understand your word in their own language. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would bless our children as they're dismissed to their classes, and Lord, that you would also bless us as we open up our copies of your word, and we ask that you would give us eyes to understand and to apply the truth that's before us here this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. We're starting, uh, we're not continuing in, don't turn to 2 Thessalonians, even though it's, you probably want to, your Bible probably just opens up to it, but um, you turn to the Gospel of John this morning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John, and we'll be looking at chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, and we're starting a new series just leading up to Resurrection Sunday, Easter as the world calls it, we call it Resurrection Sunday. Um, but we want to start this brand new series, just a few messages. Uh, we'll be meeting on Good Friday at 6 to 7 p.m. And also uh, Palm Sunday and, and uh, Resurrection Sunday at 10 a.m. Uh, next week we'll have some cards, invite cards for you to give out due to the weather and stuff around the nation. They didn't get here for this Sunday, unfortunately. <clears throat> but they'll <clears throat> be here next Sunday, possibly even Wednesday. Um, so if you want to give out uh, invitations, things like that, it has the times of the services on there and things, and it's just a good way to reach out. People are open, more so now, this time of year, to the Word of God than any other time, really, even sometimes even more than Christmas. And um, if you go through the grocery store, you'll see certain magazines have certain things about Christ during this time, things like that. People in general are just open to it, and so... We want to prepare our hearts as we lead up to uh, Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses uh, 46 through 54. 46 through 54. But before we read that, I'll have you stand in a few moments here and we'll read that. Um, we just want to introduce our, our series, and we want you to understand that our, our Lord, our Jesus, our Savior, he's not dead. <laughs> he's not a dead Savior, amen? Uh, we don't have a dead God. Uh, we don't have a dead Savior. The Bible proclaims that he is alive. Yes, he did die. He died physically, but he rose on the third day, the Bible says, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And it's because of who he is, you could say, it's because of what he's done for us that he is able to change us. He is able to transform us. He is able to raise us as individuals from spiritual death. The Bible proclaims that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. 
But he can transform us. He can raise us from spiritual death, the Bible says, to spiritual life. And that's what Resurrection Sunday, that's what Easter is all about. I remember growing up, it was all about candy. My sister-in-law, God bless her, man, she just went over the top on Easter morning. We would wake up and we'd have to go to Mass because we were Catholic. But before we got to Mass, man, we were digging into those Easter baskets because we all had a huge peanut butter or chocolate egg that she would get for us and all just tons of candy all over the dining room table. I mean, it was filled up. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is what it's about. Because as a good Catholic, you know, you got to give something up for Lent. And I always gave up candy. I don't know why I would do this to me myself every year, but I would. And then so Easter morning, man, I was just digging out because I hadn't had candy in several weeks. <laughs> and I needed my fill of sugar before I went to Mass. You know, and that's what it was all about. But that's not what the Bible says. That's, and, and I'm praying that as we go through this series, it will prepare your heart as we march toward Resurrection Sunday. It'll prepare your heart to receive the glorious truth that Jesus isn't dead, that he did rise from the dead. And we're going to look at a, a several, what I would call, resurrection passages in the coming couple of weeks here. Um, but they're going to be, I would say, passages that when you first look at it, you're going to say, oh, I don't see any resurrection here. <laughs> Why are we going here? Um, but there are glimpses of what the resurrection is all about. And that's what we want to draw out for you. And we're going to often, uh, oftentimes, we're going to see that God uses things like pain, things like problems. He uses things like tragedies in our lives, crises. He uses those things to awaken our spiritual, I guess you could say, need, or your spiritual appetite for something like the resurrection. God uses hard times. And so a lot of these things we're going to look at and the scripture accounts we're going to look at and, and, and that's basically what they are. They're, they're stories in the Bible, the scriptural accounts, factual accounts that happen. And God uses these aspects of our lives to make us aware of our spiritual need. That we are either dead in our sin and need life to be able to celebrate and be renewed again in the truth of the resurrection. So that's where we're going to be going, and uh, we're going to look at how God uses some of these things um, to awaken us. Uh, I was reading this, this past week a little story. It's an illustration. It's actually a true illustration. Uh, you, you may have read about it years ago, but a man by the, by the name of John Williamson. And John Williamson was a Canadian geologist and the story says that back in 1940, he was working in Tanzania. And at the site he was working at, the rain came and his pickup truck got buried in mud up to the axles. If you've ever been buried in a pickup truck up to the axles, it's not fun because there's little, no hope unless you have a winch to get out of there because all the tires are spinning, even if you have four wheel. And this was his plight. So the only thing he could do was get the shovel out of the back and start digging. And so he was trying to dig his pickup truck out. And the story says that when he struck this, uh, shoved this shovel down into the mud, he hit something hard. And he thought, what, what is this? I mean, and as he reached down into the muck in the mire of this mud in Tanzania, 
he pulled out a 54-carat pink-colored diamond. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know about you, but that would make my day. I don't even think you could wear that on your finger. And you're 54 carats. That's pretty big. How would you like to reach down in the muck and the mire of your life and pull out a diamond? I mean, I think that's phenomenal. Um, the truth is, we're going to see today, as often as the times in the muck and the mire of our lives, that you can find something far better, far more value than a diamond. Because sometimes in the muck and mire of your life, you even find God. You even find God. And so we're going to look at this passage now in, in John uh, 4, 46 to 54. So I'd ask if you stand in honor of God's word this morning, and I'll just read this for us, and then we'll get into it. John chapter 4, verse 46 it says, so he, Jesus, came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. It's first miracle. And at Capernaum, there was an official, some Bibles say nobleman, an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at a point of death. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, so Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour. He wanted to know the exact time when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour. When Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed, and he himself believed in all his household. Verse 54 says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come uh, uh, from Judea to Galilee. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts and to our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Charles Spurgeon, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, was quoted to have said this, Affliction is often the black horse that mercy rides to your front door. <laughs> Affliction is often the black horse that mercy rides to your front door. You know, the one thing we have to understand is affliction, pain, tragedy, crisis is that horse sometimes. Um, and, and, and we want to see that in our text here this morning. It's important that that last verse where it says there in verse 54, it says, this is now the second sign that Jesus did. If you read through the Gospel of John, 
you're going to find all kinds of accounts of Jesus doing signs and wonders. They're all over the place. And he's saying, and he says throughout his gospel, the reason that Jesus did signs and wonders wasn't for the spectacular of the sign or the wonder. That wasn't. It wasn't a performance. Jesus was putting up a tent and saying, hey, come watch me. Look what I can do. It was never just for miracles' sake that Jesus did miracles. He, he never healed just for the healing's sake. He never raised somebody from the dead just for raising them for the dead's sake. He always healed. He always performed miracles to point out who he really was. That was the purpose. And his desire was to bring eternal life so that people would believe, so that people would trust in him, in his person, in who he was. And today we're going to see here how, how John is using this account in Scripture. <clears throat> At the end of John's Gospel, if you turn all the way to the end, the last verse there, it says in verse 25 of chapter 21, it says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. <clears throat> Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Think about that. I mean, we read miracle after miracle. Jesus, that's, not, that's just scraping the surface. Some people say that Jesus basically rid that world of any kind of ailment, any kind of sickness. It was incredible, the miraculous ministry of Jesus. There wouldn't be enough books to hold them all. But he, he uses different miracles, very specifically, you might say, to point, John uses different miracles to point out who Jesus was and who he is. He is the Messiah. And he, he used these miracles to point people to eternal life, to point people to the idea of resurrection, the idea of new life. And so there's three things I want us to go over this morning. Three things. The first point there in your outline, when grief strikes, find Jesus. <laughs> when grief strikes, find Jesus. See, when a crisis comes into our lives, what do we do? We tend to want to escape. At least I do. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. Any amens here? I mean, I want to get out of the crisis. We tend to look for relief. We tend to look for a way out. But the first point here is when grief strikes, find Jesus. Look at verses 46 and 47 again. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, Jesus, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official nobleman whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, we don't know this man's name. We're not given his name. That's not important. He never mentions his name. John doesn't. But we do know that he's an official. Some of your Bibles, as I said, say nobleman's son. Maybe in Sunday school you, you studied about 
the, you know, the, the healing of the nobleman's son's uh, uh, child. And, and so here, you know, in the original Greek, this word official or nobleman is basilikos. Basilicus. Now, when you think of a basilica, what do you think of? You think of a worship center, right? You think of someplace, a cathedral, someplace where people worship God. But here the meaning of, of basilicus is really, it means one who belongs to a king. One who belongs to a king. This is a, a nobleman. He's an official of the king. You could say he's a, probably a big wig in Herod's court. Who knows? And he's got power. He's got position. He's got prestige. And he's got prosperity. He's got it all. But we find in this story, he's also got something else. He's got a big, big problem. And he doesn't know what to do about it. His problem is that death is on his doorstep. His son, he says, is dying. His son is dying. As a parent, some of you may know the feeling of a child dying. As a parent, maybe you have lost a child to death. I've been acquainted with death most of my life. My mother passed away when I was three. My dad passed away when I was seven. I lost four brothers and one sister over the past 20 years. Very acquainted with death. I have a privilege of serving as chaplain with Redwood City. I also served as a chaplain with the sheriff's department down in Riverside before I moved here. And guess what? As a chaplain, guess what you deal with? Death. They don't call the chaplain Hey, you want to come have donuts with us? No. They call the chaplain when somebody dies. Usually tragically. And the hardest, I can honestly tell you this, the hardest, the most difficult of all the deaths that I've had to deal with, that I've encountered in my own personal life, are always those parents who lost a child. It doesn't even matter the age. Because children aren't supposed to die before the parents. <laughs> it's just not supposed to happen. It shouldn't be that way. It's disorienting. It's, it's devastating to people. It's shocking when a parent loses a child. But here's the thing. Maybe we forget, but this isn't foreign to God. All the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way at the beginning of Scripture, the first pages of Scripture, the very first grave was prepared for what? For a son and not a parent. The very first parents, Adam and Eve, buried their son Abel, who was killed by their other son, Cain. Really, that day they lost two sons, you could say. It's almost as if God, I think, was in the very beginning wanting us to remember what sin does. The consequences of sin. How sin has corrupted the world. How it's turned everything upside down and really messed everything up. 
because parents are not supposed to bury their children. But because of sin, that certainly happens. And that's what's happening here in this account. You have a nobleman, you have an official, he's got everything in the world, but he's, now he's got this huge problem. No doubt, he had everything that he could imagine. He probably spared no expense to get the healing of his son done. He probably bought all the medicine he could. He probably hired the best doctors, but it wasn't working. Nothing worked. Really, this might be the first time in this nobleman's life, this man's life, that he realized that his position, his prestige, his prosperity, his popularity couldn't change something in his life. Couldn't do it. He finally realized there's something in his life that money can't buy. And now all of a sudden... He's looking deep in his heart and he's thinking, what do I do? What am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? This is a good place to just kind of slip in here. No one escapes problems. No one escapes pains and tragedies, crises in life. Nobody. I mean, I don't care how high on the food chain you are. I don't care how much money you have. Frankly, I don't even care how spiritual you are. You don't escape this kind of stuff. It touches every one of our lives. And it's a good reminder for us as a church, for us who love God and are Christ followers, that just because we love God and just because we choose to follow Christ, we're not exempt, beloved, from the deepest Crises, the deepest tragedies in life, and, and even the most painful moments in life. We're not exempt from that. Because sometimes as believers, as Christians, as Christ followers, sometimes I think we think we are. And the reason I can say that, personally, and for other people, is that when something bad happens in our lives, what do we do? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Right? I've been a good good boy. I've been a good girl. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. Why did I lose the job? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? It's as if these things or tragedies in life, we believe that God exempts us from. And the, and the Bible continually, over and over again, beloved, tells us we're not exempt. As a matter of fact, Jesus made a lot of promises in Scripture, right? We see one here in the text to this individual. But he made a lot of promises in Scripture. And frankly, some of the promises we don't like. <laughs> like John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. That's a promise. You will have tribulation. I don't hear many Christians waking up in the morning claiming that promise. <laughs> I don't hear that's one that's claimed. 
Standing on the promises of Christ, my Lord. Oh, Lord, bring it on. In the world, I'll have tribulation. I can't wait. No, we don't do that. We can avoid this promise. What is it? It's a reminder to us. Personally, we're not exempt. We're not exempt. See, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in this area of crisis is not what happens to them. It's not what happens to them. But it's who walks with them through the crisis or through the tragedy. That's the only difference when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to trouble, pain, loss. It's not what happens to them, but it's who walks with them through it. There could be people here this morning. There could be parents here this morning who will lose a child. That's horrible to even think about, but it's a possibility. And you know what? It's not because God hates you. (laughs) It's not because even you've done something wrong. Because the difference is not what happens to you, but who walks with you through it. Look over at Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. The prophet Isaiah writes in verse 1, Isaiah 43, verse 1, he says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice what this text says. He says, I bought you, you're mine, fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name. But you're going to go through some issues in life. It doesn't say if. If you pass through the waters, it says when. It's guaranteed you will. It's guaranteed you'll go through troubled waters. It's guaranteed you'll go through raging rivers. It's guaranteed that you will walk through fire. God never tells us that he's going to spare us from the storm.